Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. The importance of biblical languages for ministry. The study of the Holy Scriptures must form the core of any responsible training that seeks to prepare men and women for effective and faithful Christian ministry. No other book or books can rival the Bible in importance for evangelizing the lost, discipling believers, establishing churches, edifying the saints, comforting the grieving, strengthening the weak, calming the anxious, conquering evil, or glorifying our crucified and resurrected Savior. Thus, the Bible is indisputably the most important textbook for ministry preparation. Uh, Clearly, the Bible is far more than a mere textbook, and to treat it as any other textbook would be a despicable act of sacrilege. Uh, We should cherish this book as a treasure, for as our Baptist faith and message exclaims, the Bible is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. Other books in our curricula were written by fallible human beings, but this book is totally true and trustworthy since it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. And every believer should strive to understand the Bible because these sacred scriptures are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 3.15. Everyone who desires to increase in Christ's likeness and to serve God effectively should study the Bible since, quote, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Accurately interpreting the Bible should be among the highest priorities of any who are tasked with explaining the Scriptures, whether they do so in the context of one-on-one evangelism, small group discipleship from the lectern in a classroom, or from the pulpit of a church. The Apostle Paul charged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. The imperative that Paul uses here refers to giving yourself fully to a task, making your best effort, being wholly dedicated to the work. Paul illustrates this diligence with a vivid illustration. He says that Timothy is to correctly teach the word of truth, and the word translated correctly teach is orthotomeo, which literally means to cut straight. Since the context uses agricultural imagery to portray Timothy's role, and refers to Timothy as a worker, a term most frequently used of an agricultural laborer or a farmhand, I agree with Chrysostom 
that Paul has the picture of a farmhand cutting a straight furrow in mind. A diligent farmhand in Paul's time would drive a stake at two adjacent corners of his field, stretch a string between those two stakes, and then use that string as a guide for his plow so that he could meticulously plow the furrow as straight as possible. The worker knew that at the end of the day, the master of the estate would inspect his work, and he wanted those beautiful, neat, perfectly aligned rows to show the master that he had taken great pains to do his very best work. The straight furrow demonstrated that he approached his task with a commitment to accuracy and precision. In the same way, Paul says that we who proclaim the Word are spiritual farmhands who should be meticulous in our effort to plow a straight furrow with the Word of truth. That is, we dare not approach the task of interpreting God's Word casually or flippantly. We strive for accuracy and precision in our exposition of the Scriptures. We are deeply concerned to handle God's Word well. Paul reminds us that the master will inspect the field that we have plowed. He will examine the straightness of the furrows. He will judge whether we have accurately handled his word. He explains that the preacher or teacher who has correctly taught the word of truth will not need to be ashamed. The shame that Paul is describing here is clearly a far deeper shame than mere public embarrassment, as frightening as that is. The word present that Paul uses is a legal term which speaks of presenting yourself to a judge for a verdict. Thus, Paul is describing the shame that the preacher or teacher will know on judgment day when he stands before God to give an account for what he has preached and taught and discovers that he has warped and perverted the Word of God. Paul emphasizes here that the preacher and teacher will be judged based on the accuracy of the messages that we have preached. If we've preached the truth accurately, we'll be approved and we'll stand before God unashamed. But if we have preached error, we will stand before God disapproved and in shame. We will not be judged by how clever our sermons are. We will not be judged by the number of people who come to hear us preach or teach. We'll not be judged even according to the numbers who repent and believe in response to our preaching. We will be judged by the accuracy of the message as an expression of the revealed truth of God. When God examines our proclamation of the Word, He won't be impressed by our clever alliteration, by our catchy and trendy phrases, by our charismatic personalities, by our moving illustrations. Only the one who makes every effort to accurately expound the Word will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we can faithfully proclaim the gospel of salvation from any good translation of the Bible. This is due to the perspicuity of Scripture. 
because of the essential clarity of the biblical message, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 correctly states that, quote, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or the other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. The confession adds that the Scripture should be translated into the language of every nation so that those who do not know Hebrew and Greek may worship God in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. Yet strikingly, the confession adds that since the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament were directly inspired by God, quote, in all controversies of religion, the church is to finally appeal to them. That is, the Bible in the original languages is the final authority because the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament were directly inspired by God. Article 10 of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy recognizes this same distinction when it states, inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text, that is, the original text of the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament. But then it adds, copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. That leads the question, how faithfully do our translations represent the original text? Very well. And our finest translations are steadily improving. However, any translation is by necessity an interpretation. And the interpretations of even the best translators differ. That is why we can compare even the best translations and find that the translations of a specific verse not only differ in wording, but often also differ in meaning. And in those cases in which the translations differ in meaning, at least one of the translators has misunderstood the original text. Every translator must make important decisions about the meaning of the original text in order to communicate its meaning to readers in other languages. But no human translator can do so perfectly. I'm not aware of any English translation of the Bible that claims to be a perfect translation. Although some Christians have argued that the King James Version of 1611 is perfect, interestingly, the translators of the version explicitly denied this. They argued that their translation should be respected and should be accepted due to its general character and despite its minor faults. In the section, An Answer to the Imputations of Our Adversaries, in the preface to the original King James Version, the translators argued that a man could be considered handsome 
even though he had some flaws, such as warts on his hand or freckles on his face or scars on his body. They concluded, quote, No cause, therefore, why the word translated should be denied to be the word or forbidden to be current that is brought up to date in its translation, notwithstanding that some imperfections and blemishes may be noted in the setting forth of it. For whatever was perfect under the sun, where apostles or apostolic men, that is, men endued with an extraordinary measure of God's Spirit and privileged with the privilege of infallibility, had not their hand. The translators were acknowledging that they were not apostles or companions of the apostles like Luke and Mark and the brothers of the Lord. Thus, what they translated was neither perfect, inspired, nor infallible. Their translation, despite their best efforts, had imperfections and blemishes. Since translations are not directly inspired by God, like the original text of Scripture was, and since no translation can perfectly and completely express what God revealed in His Word, the ability to read and study the Scriptures in the original languages is immensely valuable, especially for those who teach and preach the Scriptures. Now, those who wish to teach only the obvious truths of Scripture and to summarize larger portions of the biblical text in their lessons or sermons can usually do so accurately by comparing a few faithful translations of the Bible. But those who want to teach or preach the details of Scripture, focusing on the meaning of single words, specific phrases, and grammatical constructions should seek to learn biblical languages to ensure that they interpret Scripture accurately. Mastery of biblical languages will prevent exegesis from devolving into eisegesis. Even basic familiarity with biblical languages will grant the interpreter access to the most helpful and insightful resources for biblical study. Now, I'm well aware that many demure, I have encountered many detractors over the years who have adamantly argued that learning Hebrew and Greek is a waste of time. But I have observed that they all share a common trait. They do not know Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> I wish that these advisors would change their recommendation because I trust that these advisors dearly love the Word of God. And I must assume that if they knew the languages well and had seen their great importance for biblical interpretation in verse after verse after verse after verse, they would implore you to seize any opportunity that you may have to learn the languages of Scripture. Now, let me offer a few examples of the relevance of knowledge of biblical languages for the correct interpretation of the Scripture directly inspired by God. I'll present examples in which knowledge of biblical languages 
confirms the essential doctrines of our Christian faith, enriches our understanding of biblical theology, guards the church from aberrant practices, and offers moral guidance regarding important trends in our culture. First of all, knowledge of biblical languages confirms the essential doctrines of our faith. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 contains a great hymn that exalts and glorifies Jesus. However, traditional English translations of one important phrase unintentionally prompt a grave misunderstanding of Jesus' identity. The King James Version translates the final phrase of verse 15 as the firstborn of every creature. The English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible prefer the translation, firstborn of all creation. But you should know that no preposition appears in the Greek text of this phrase. In other words, the Greek text does not contain a word for of. All creation is in the genitive case. And this case can express dozens of different relationships between the head noun, firstborn, and the genitive modifier, creation. The ordinary English reader would assume that the of implies what we might call the partitive genitive. In other words, the firstborn who is a part of all creation. This would imply that Jesus is a created being, not the eternal creator incarnate deity. And this misunderstanding was the view of the ancient heretic Arius, whose diminished view of Jesus was soundly and rightly condemned by the early church in multiple councils and creeds. But although the Greek genitive may mean is a part of, in some other contexts, it clearly does not hear. The title firstborn expresses supreme authority drawn from the description of the king in Psalm 89, 27. I will make him my firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. And after a title of authority, especially such supreme authority, the genitive noun will identify the realm over which a figure rules, that is, his royal domain. Examples of this construction include the king of Israel. Israel is the realm of the king. The Lord of the earth, the Lord rules over the earth. The master of the house, the master has authority over the house. Paul is not claiming that Christ belongs to creation and is thus a created being. He is describing Christ as the greatest of kings and all creation as his realm. Translations like the New International Version and the Christian Standard Bible express the sense of the Greek text far better here when they read, Christ is the firstborn over all creation. However, if I do not know biblical Greek, I could easily be confused by the differences in the respected translations. 
If I became aware that some translations use over instead of of, I would not be able to adjudicate which translation was better apart from some acquaintance with Greek grammar and syntax. Biblical languages are also significant for enriched biblical theology. For a good example of the value of knowing biblical languages for enriching our understanding of biblical theology, we need look no further than the very first phrase of the New Testament. Although many translations suggest that Matthew opened his gospel with the phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, this simply does not fully express the richness of Matthew's Greek expression. You will probably be surprised to know that of all the hundreds of occurrences of the key term in the phrase in ancient Greek text, and there are 57 in just the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint alone, our standard dictionaries of Greek list only one text in which the key term may mean genealogy, and it's this one. In other words, if Matthew's expression refers to a genealogy, he is using the expression in an unusual way distinct from the rest of ancient Greek literature and biblical literature specifically. Now, when used in the plural, the noun may refer to the generations in a genealogy, but the noun here is singular, and the singular noun does not refer to a genealogy. The ordinary Greek terms for genealogy are genealogema, katagoge, genealogia, not the term that we find here. Older versions like Tyndale's translation and the King James Version were influenced by the Latin Vulgate and translated the phrase, the book of the generation. And properly understood, that is an accurate translation, far superior to the one we find in most of our versions today. But many interpreters seem to have missed that the word refers to a single act of generation not to the many generations that constitute a genealogy. So what is Matthew's phrase? Well, it consists of the noun biblos, which means book. Our word Bible is derived from this Greek word. And the noun geneseos, which is the genitive form of the noun genesis. Sound familiar? The phrase may be literally translated the book of Genesis. Genesis, Genesis was the name for the first book of Moses in our earliest manuscripts of the Septuagint. You can see on your screen some images from Codex Vaticanus, our earliest extant Pandect, which is a manuscript of the entire Greek Bible, Greek Old Testament as well as Greek New Testament. And twice you'll see in the images that this first book was referred to as Genesis, Genesis, same word Matthew uses in Matthew 1.1. Philo of Alexandria, a contemporary of Jesus and of Matthew, also used this name to refer to the first Old Testament book. And Matthew, 
a very careful student of the Old Testament, was undoubtedly aware that this precise phrase, Biblos Geneseos, appeared in the text of the Old Testament, not just its titles. In passages like Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1, where it introduced the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth and the account of the creation of humanity, respectively. So what do we make of this? Well, Matthew is intentionally introducing his gospel as a creation account, like the book of Genesis, and like Genesis 2-4 and 5-1 specifically. The phrase of Jesus Christ identifies Jesus as the creator who brings about this new Genesis. Jesus is the author of this new creation. Now, this doctrine of new creation will appear at several points in Matthew's gospel. For the sake of time, we'll just look at the clearest example, Matthew 19, 28, in which Jesus describes the era of the Son of Man sitting on His glorious throne, granting eternal life to His disciples as the palingenesia, which means the regeneration, the new beginning, the new genesis, or as the CSB translates, the renewal of all things. Thus, even before Matthew describes Jesus as the virgin-born Emmanuel, he titles his gospel as a book of Genesis, a Genesis performed by Jesus Christ to demonstrate that Jesus is the agent of creation and the author of new creation. Jesus will create a new humanity by imparting God's Spirit to give new life to those who were spiritually dead. And He will create a new heaven and a new earth at the time of His glorious return. Now, I recognize that most Bible readers have probably never heard this interpretation, even though many, perhaps even most, Commentators who based their exegesis of Matthew on its Greek text rather than merely an English translation affirm this view. The interpretation seems odd or idiosyncratic only because so few Bible teachers know Greek and consult the best resources. Knowledge of biblical languages is also helpful for refuting aberrant church practices. Some of our Baptist distinctives are affirmed if, if we know biblical language as well. Baptists affirm that the believer experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration, the reception of new birth. In Articles 2 and 4 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, teach that the primary effect of this spiritual baptism is the cultivation of our Christian character and our conformity to the image of Christ. But other groups hold very different views. Apostolic faith churches hold that the baptism of the Spirit follows both regeneration and sanctification. 
And they claim, quote, when this infilling occurs, it is accompanied, no exceptions allowed, it is accompanied by the same sign as the disciples had on the day of Pentecost, the speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Similarly, the United Pentecostal Church International teaches the saving gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. But then it adds, quote, we obey the gospel by repentance, water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial sign of speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. So, does the New Testament teach that all spiritually mature believers will speak in tongues? Does the New Testament teach that the initial sign of obedience to the gospel is speaking in tongues? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12.30, the Apostle Paul poses a similar question. The ESV translates the questions thusly, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And most major translations handle the verse in a similar fashion, including the NIV and the CSB. But these translations imply that Paul was asking an open-ended question and that the answer can only be inferred by a careful reading of the context, when in fact, Greek authors could pose binary, polar, that is, yes or no, questions in a variety of ways. A question without the negative was open-ended. It didn't hint at an implied response. A question with the negative, ook, implied an affirmative response. But a question with the negative, may, implied a negative response. And here... Paul used the negative may three times, implying a negative reply to each of his questions. The sense is captured well in the NET, which translates, not all have gifts of healing, do they? Not all speak in tongues, do they? Not all interpret, do they? And my point is that an understanding of Greek syntax that's able to look beyond our most popular English translations thwarts the Pentecostals' insistence that speaking in tongues is the initial sign of obedience to the gospel. One final example. Knowledge of biblical languages is also crucial for defining Christian morality and ethics in a culture with rapidly shifting values. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 describes the wicked who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Two of these categories of wickedness that Paul lists have been translated in confusing or even misleading ways in the history of the English Bible. 1526, Tyndale used the translation weaklings and abusers of themselves with mankind. 1560, the Geneva Bible used wanton and buggerers. The King James translators used effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind. Although modern readers are going to be puzzled by the expressions in these early translations, 
The old commentators recognized that one of the terms, at least, clearly referred to sodomites, that is, those who committed the sin of the men of Sodom described in Genesis 19 and Jude 7, as the old commentaries demonstrate. Now, beginning in the 20th century, one of the terms began to be translated as homosexual. The first use of the terms homosexual and heterosexual appeared in a letter written in German by Karl Maria Kirkbenny in 1868. But by 1946, the term homosexual was used frequently enough in English to describe same-sex sexual acts that the translators of the Revised Standard Version used the word homosexual in an English Bible translation for the first time. Now, despite some recent claims, the translators did not impose the prohibition of sexual relationships between those of the same sex on the Bible. They did not import that idea. They were merely the first to use the relatively new term homosexual in Bible translation. Sadly, several authors and filmmakers have perpetrated the myth that the 1946 translators were guilty of a, quote, grave mistranslation that sparked the anti-gay movement among Christians in the United States. No, not at all. To see precisely what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we need to examine the Greek nouns that he employed. Paul probably coined the last term in the verse, the noun arsenokoites, because his use of the term is the earliest in all surviving Greek literature. Paul uses the term himself again in 1 Timothy 1.10. But the next known usage of the term does not occur until the end of the second century in the writings of Clement of Alexandria. In other words, Paul adopted, he created this specific term. But Paul did not coin the term in a linguistic vacuum. Paul formed the word by combining the word arson, male, with the word koite, bed, so that the word refers to one who goes to bed with a male. Since bed was often used as a euphemism for sexual relationships, the term refers to one who has sex with the male. Paul's term was derived from Leviticus 18.22. You shall not sleep with the male as with a female, for it is an abomination. And Leviticus 20.13, whoever sleeps with the male as with the female, both of them have committed an abomination. The Greek translation of these two texts from Leviticus uses the key terms male, arson, and bed sex, koite, which are the components of Paul's term. So Paul's term forms a clear allusion to these two Old Testament texts and clearly refers to a man who has sex with a male who fulfills the role ordinarily assumed by a female. The noun describes one who plays the masculine or dominant role in a homosexual act. Now, this clearer term 
enables us to precisely define what Paul meant by the preceding term. The preceding term refers to the one who played the passive role in a homosexual act. The term is malakos, literally soft one which was equivalent to the Greek term eramenos and the Latin term pathicus or kinetus. The term was used by ancient writers like Philo to describe the male who played the passive or feminine role in a homosexual act. The most popular form of homosexuality in the Greco-Roman world was pederasty in which an older, wealthier male used a younger male for sexual purposes and then granted him favors for the relationship. Leading Greek philosophers like Socrates were pederast and wrote in defense of this practice. And the practice ultimately infiltrated Roman morality too. Paul is clearly referring here by Malakos to the typically younger more feminine partner in a homosexual act. So if we understand Paul's terms, he is prohibiting playing the dominant role and playing the passive role in a homosexual act because Leviticus 20.13 had insisted both have committed an abomination. Uh, many modern interpreters argue that Paul is referring exclusively to abusive homosexual acts, not loving and mutually voluntary homosexual acts. But if this were so, he would not have condemned the passive partner, who is often portrayed today in discussions as the object of violence and abuse, along with the dominant partner. Paul's insistence on the wickedness of playing either the dominant or the passive role in a homosexual act shows that he viewed consensual homosexual acts as sinful because these were a perversion of the created order and God's moral standards for sexual relationships. His teaching is not based on the assumption that homosexual acts were always characterized by violence or abuse, as is often claimed today. Several English translations, such as the NIV and the CSB, capture the sense well by merging the two categories and simply saying, males who have sex with males. But then they add a footnote indicating that Paul's Greek expression refers to both the passive and active participants in homosexual acts. The ERV preserves the distinction in the two categories very well when it translates men who let other men use them for sex or who have sex with other men. Sadly, Christians are increasingly confused by the wide variety of translations of this verse that fail to clearly express the meaning of Paul's terms. Although the RSV originally translated arsenokoitai as homosexual, it then changed the translation in 1971 to sexual pervert. 
Then the new RSV of 1989 used the old translation sodomite. But when the NRSV was updated in 2021, it changed the translation to the much more ambiguous wording, men who engage in illicit sex. But what does that mean? Since illicit often means illegal or unlawful, many readers will probably assume that homosexual acts that are not criminal are permissible, as if Paul had intended Roman law to define the sexual ethics of the church. And since the adjective illicit does not appear anywhere else in the updated NRSV, even careful readers will struggle to understand precisely what the translators meant by illicit sex. The ambiguity is purposeful because a note adds the meaning of the Greek is uncertain. No, it's really not. Other versions render these important terms in equally confusing ways. The message, for example, uses the phrase, those who use and abuse each other and use and abuse sex. But this rendering could imply that sexual relationships, even between same-sex partners, are permissible if consensual and not forced. The Worldwide English Translation uses the phrase, those who commit adultery of any kind, instead. But this implies that same-sex sexual relationships are permissible if performed within the bounds of a gay marriage or a civil union. And I'm afraid that we can expect such misleading translations to multiply under the pressures of the new sexual revolution. So here's my point. Since some translations render text addressing important moral issues in very confusing ways, having a knowledge of biblical languages is crucial for addressing the challenges of our increasingly decadent culture. My conclusion, knowledge of the Holy Scriptures is essential to Christian ministry. Ministries ranging from evangelism, church planting, cross-cultural missions, counseling, teaching, and preaching require an accurate understanding of the Bible. Since biblical illiteracy is alarmingly widespread, even among faithful church attenders, the study of the Bible by candidates for ministry is more important than ever before for the health of the Christian church in America. And the most helpful tool for detailed Bible study is knowledge of the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek. The ability to look beyond English translations to the original, directly inspired text will help defend the essential truths of the Christian gospel, enrich our understanding of biblical theology, and help us respond to the moral and ethical challenges of a culture that increasingly seeks to redefine biblical standards in order to justify personal preferences. Readers of the Lord of the Rings series likely know that J.R.R. Tolkien invented several fictional languages for his books. But did you know that a group of Tolkien scholars formed the Elvish Linguistic Fellowship, acronym ELF, 
a group devoted to the scholarly study of these fictional languages? Did you know that ELF has developed dictionaries and grammars of the various languages created by Tolkien? Similarly, linguist Mark Ockrand developed the Klingon language for the Star Trek series. And fans have now written dictionaries and grammars of this fictional language and have translated other important literary works into Klingon, such as the Elpic Epic of Gilgamesh, The Art of War, The Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and William Shakespeare's Hamlet. If devotees of Tolkien's writings are committed to the study of Elvish. If fans of Star Trek are devoted to the study of Klingon, how can Christians who believe that the Holy Scriptures in the original languages are the inspired and inerrant Word of God possibly see the labors expended in learning Hebrew and Greek as too great a sacrifice? Surely, the God-breathed Word is more than worthy of every effort to interpret it accurately and proclaim it faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we know that we will one day stand before You and give an account for the way that we have handled Your Word. And when we do, we do not want to be disapproved. We do not want to be put to shame. We want to be faithful workers who plow a straight furrow with the word of truth. Lord, help us to handle your word reverently and rightly so that when we stand before you, we can hear your words of commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. And let us never tire of any effort that we must expend to understand the Holy Scriptures better, even when that entails immersing ourselves in the ancient languages in which you chose to reveal the Holy Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.com. EDU.